I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Potential. It lives in all of us. It lives in tomorrow, the day after, and years to come. We realize it by planning for the best instead of preparing for the worst. At AIB, we want to help you see the potential in yourself, your future, and your money, which is why we offer our customers the opportunity to plan for what matters most with our team of financial advisors. Your future is full of potential and AIB can help you get there. Visit aib.ie forward slash financial planning or call us today to find out how we can help. Allied Irish Banks PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Hey guys, this is Maddie and Kenzie Ziegler and we have a podcast called Take 20. We want to kick back and hang out with you but we know you're busy, so let's take 20 every week to talk, to vent, to get real. 20 minutes to catch up and talk about everything that's on our minds and yours. Listen with us for 20 minutes when you're in the car, putting on makeup, working out, cleaning your room, avoiding doing your homework. Take a break from whatever you have to do and hang out with us. Listen to Take 20 on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Allie Wentworth, host of Go Ask Allie. My listeners want more, so we are digging in. It's real, it's honest, open and unexpected, and sometimes amusing. You told me you chased him with a butcher knife (laughs) and tried to cut off his penis, but that's his version and everybody has a different version. Everybody has two two sides of every story. Exactly. All new episodes of Go Ask Alley release every Thursday. Listen to Go Ask Alley on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. For me, this all started in February with a video that I saw on Instagram. You've probably seen it too. It's pulled from a security camera, so it's almost like watching a really fast slideshow. There's this elderly man who's walking in a driveway. Then all of a sudden, someone rushes into the frame and basically shoves him into the ground and then just walks away. Visha Ratanapakti, an 84-year-old man who was brutally assaulted and killed walking outside his San Francisco home in January. At the same time, there was another video circulating. Police are investigating another attack on an Asian-American person in Northern California. This one happened in Chinatown in Oakland. Again, it's an elderly man walking, and all of a sudden someone rushes up behind him and knocks him to the ground face first, and then just walks away. Raj, tonight we're learning more about two attacks on members of the Asian American community. Graphic videos of elderly Asians being attacked in the Bay Area have not let up. The videos are going viral, and people were talking about a surge in violence against Asian Americans. I want to use my platform to remind everyone to please take this seriously. Pay attention and honestly check in on your Asian friends. The racism was always there, but now the pandemic has given people an excuse to act on it. And I noticed that it wasn't just activists posting this. It was also Asian-American influencers and some legit celebrities like Daniel Day Kim and Daniel Wu. They're both famous actors, and together they have almost 2 million followers on Instagram. And the message was clear that these attacks were part of a long trend of violence and hatred against Asian-Americans that people, especially the media, weren't taking seriously. And that needed to change. Actors Daniel Day Kim and Daniel Wu teamed up to offer a $25,000 reward for information that leads to the arrest and conviction of the perpetrator. Daniel and I offered this reward for a couple of reasons. One, to, to bring this criminal to justice, but also to bring attention to this issue. Both of the attackers were arrested. Finally, it felt like major media outlets were actually starting to pay attention. A lot of the conversation was happening online. So I was scrolling through the comments in the posts, and there were the kind of comments that you would expect. Things that I also felt. People saying, this is disgusting. This is terrible. This needs to stop. But I also noticed something else. I saw that there were a lot of Asian people in the comments who were really hung up on the fact that the attackers were black. 
In the U.S., African Americans riot when they are discriminated against. Don't you people realize that the murderer was a black guy? But Asians just cry, so the government quietly waits for time to pass and does nothing. I guess only black lives matter. Yellow lives, not so much. It was like people were fixated on it, and spaces that had started out as a way to support other Asian American people devolved into these really racist rants about black people. And I won't lie, it kind of frustrated me, but it didn't surprise me. So I figured I should get off the internet and talk to some people about this in real life. Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, or APIs, have gone viral. And in some incidents, the perpetrators are black. Right now, the U.S. is seeing a startling rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans. I was flooded with feedback asking, what about hate crimes towards Asian Americans perpetrated by black people? And it's prompted a conversation I think we need to have. This is Vice News Reports, and I'm your host, Ariel Zimmerman. Over the past year, it's been devastating to see the multiple instances of anti-Asian violence happening across the country. There's been a national effort to try to stop these attacks. The U.S. Senate passed an anti-Asian hate crime bill. New York City created a special police task force. But a lot of the responses surrounding these attacks have come in the form of difficult conversations happening online. And the tensions that underpin these discussions echo a longer, more complicated conversation that Dexter Thomas, a correspondent with Vice News, has been thinking about for years. Dexter's going to take it from here. So I should talk about where I fit in here. I cover culture. A lot of times that means documenting how people grapple with who they are and who they want to be. So watching a community argue internally with how to deal with violence and racism naturally raises a lot of questions for me. And maybe it's also relevant to mention here that I'm Black. The conversation about Black and Asian communities is kind of personal to me. And it has been for a long time. When I was a teenager, I started getting into learning languages. One of the first ones I tried was Japanese. One summer in high school, I even got to go to Japan. I live with the host family in Tokyo. And this was my first time really living outside the U.S. Everything around me was new, but nothing was really surprising to me. Until one night, my Japanese host family made okra for dinner. My grandma's from Louisiana, and okra is something I pretty much only ate at her house. I grew up mostly around black people and white people, and I'd never seen a white person eat okra. And I think I was convinced that the only people who eat okra were black people. But here I was in Tokyo with a bunch of Japanese people and a plate full of okra. And I remember calling my dad on the phone and just saying, yo, dad, they eat okra here. They're just like us. The next time I left home, it was a move into the dorms for college. There were a whole bunch of Asian American kids in there. It was a first for me, and for most of them, I think it was their first time living in close quarters with a black person. And honestly, I was feeling like I was getting the good end of the deal. They were teaching me Chinese, bringing me food from home, and it was pretty great. Matter of fact, one person and I started dating, and things were pretty cool. Until one day she told me, hey, I'm never going to be able to bring you home to my family. They're all pretty racist. And this just didn't compute to me. What did she mean by her family was racist? So I started talking to some of my other Asian American friends, these people that I knew that I'd formed this amazing bond with. And the general vibe was, yeah, man, that's just kind of how it is. It was like I'd had the rug pulled out from under me. Because, hey, I was 17 at this point, and I'd experienced racism before. A lot. But that was all from white people. But my new friends? I don't know, I thought we were on the same side. I didn't know that we could do this to each other. I didn't let this affect me too much. I eventually went on to get a PhD in East Asian Studies. I now speak Japanese, and I could kind of hold my own in Mandarin Chinese. And this naturally puts me in a lot of Asian and Asian-American spaces. And 90% of the time, it's cool. But every once in a while, I'd have an experience that would take me right back to when I was a teenager. 
when I naively thought that I'd found a community that I resonated with because we were both minorities in America. But in fact, the opposite happened, that some people kept the distance from me because I was black. It's particularly frustrating right now because this last year or so has been really hard on two groups of people that I care a lot about. On one hand, I'm watching black people being dehumanized by police and commentators on the news. If you're throwing rocks, bricks, and water bottles filled with paint thinner, you are not a protester. You are not a demonstrator. You are a thug. And on the other hand, Asians getting blamed for the coronavirus by racists, going all the way up to the former president. COVID-19. That name gets further and further away from China, as opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. And then there's a reality of the feeling that these violent attacks on Asian Americans are increasing. And look, all that wild racist stuff I was talking about in the comments section, that's not everyone. A lot of the conversations I see online from liberal Asian American activists are advocating for solidarity with black people. I see this all the time on Instagram, and it's usually centered around a handful of images. For example, there's this one picture from the 1960s. It's this black and white photo of a bunch of Asian dudes, and one of them's holding a sign that says, Yellow Peril supports black power. And this past summer, I saw people showing up to actual protests with handmade signs that had the same slogan. There's this one photo in particular, though, that I see over and over again online. This one's also from the 1960s, and it's of a Japanese-American activist named Yuri Kochiyama, where she's shouting into this megaphone at an anti-war protest. And in the captions, there's always a mention that she was friends with Malcolm X and that she was there when he died. People will keep bringing up this photo. And this photo is one that Asian Americans really like bringing up because it becomes this kind of image of like, this is what Black Asian solidarity looks like. To rewind a little bit and back up, could you introduce yourself and your name and what you do. My name is Tamara Knopper, and I am a sociologist by training. I have taught college classes on race and ethnicity for about two decades now. Tamara's Korean-American. She grew up in Ohio, and a lot of her research focuses on historical tension, specifically between Black and Korean communities. She also recently gave a whole lecture online about the current state of Black and Asian solidarity. She's scrolled through the same pictures I have, and she's got a phrase for it. Those images are supposed to kind of demonstrate this hidden history. Hidden history. I didn't realize it, but that's the word I've been looking for. The idea that there's a hidden or secret history of Black-Asian solidarity that's been hidden away from us by white people. And if we would all just read the right books, we'd remember that history. And to be fair, most people, Black, Asian, or otherwise, don't know this history. Because most of this stuff, they don't teach you in school. I mean, it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I learned about the Third World Liberation Front. This is a group of Black, Latino, Indigenous, and Asian American college students in the Bay Area in the late 60s. They formed a coalition to protest not only against the war in Vietnam, but against racism in university administrations. They shut down Berkeley and San Francisco State for months. Number one, that funds be allocated for the implementation of the Third World College. A, Department of Asian Studies, controlled by Asian people. B, Department of Black Studies. as And in a lot of ways, they were successful. They're one of the reasons that universities now have ethnic studies departments. That said, though, this story is just like those pictures I mentioned earlier. It gets brought up a lot particularly by a certain crowd of activists. What do you think the attraction is for a lot of people who, you know, a lot of Asian Americans who do see themselves as being oriented towards social justice, posting pictures of the Yellow Peril supports Black Power, posting the Yuri Kochiyama picture? What, what does it do for them? I think a major anxiety that Asian Americans have is about the fear that people think we're a model minority. And that people think we're submissive to white people or that people think that we're more liked by white people or that people think that we're becoming like whites. Now, again, 
I gotta stress that there are a lot of Asian American organizers and groups who are doing serious work for solidarity between Black and Asian people. Not just online, but also in communities and in person. This goes from being there at protests to advocating for changes in policing and the justice system. This is all happening as we speak, and they absolutely deserve recognition because they're doing work. Where things get tricky is if someone isn't really involved in that work and gets the idea that these hidden history pictures and stories that they're seeing were the norm, because they're not. The norm was a lot of Asian Americans had racially segregated neighborhoods, partly to keep black people out of some of these neighborhoods, and also to police the boundaries of some of the relationships between their children and black people. Because if we want to celebrate those bright spots and interactions between black and Asian people, we have to look at everything, like what happened in Los Angeles in 1992, what a lot of people call the L.A. riots. I think that was a rebellion. Tamara says it's more accurate to call it the L.A. rebellion. And it was a rebellion against police occupation, and it was a rebellion against exploitative Korean store owners and business owners and property owners. And so the L.A. rebellion, a lot of people have said that the Rodney King verdict was a spark of it. It was the beating of Rodney King. Four LAPD officers were charged in that case, but a jury didn't agree with prosecutors and returned not guilty verdicts. It started on the day when that verdict came out. But by the time that verdict came out, things had been tense for years. Rodney King wasn't the only name people had in their minds. People in L.A., especially Black people, were also thinking about Latasha Harlins. That same month that Rodney King was beaten by police, Latasha, a 15-year-old Black girl, was shot and killed over a bottle of orange juice by a Korean store owner named Soon Ja Du. And Soon Ja Du was given a very lenient sentence by Judge Carlin, this white woman. And so in 1992, after the Rodney King verdict... Of the four police officers seen on videotape beating Mr. King a year ago, they've all been found not guilty. Everything just explodes. Many Koreans who yesterday were the shopkeepers of South Central Los Angeles today have lost the businesses they took years to create. Over 2,000 Korean businesses were destroyed. Koreans own many of the small businesses. They're insular. They employ their own. They keep to themselves. Blacks say that's the problem. I'm not surprised that the Koreans got targeted because their prices are high, their attitude is wrong. And they just don't seem to have any respect for the black community. The whole thing was photographed and videotaped endlessly. Every night on the news, there were images of cop cars burning, violent arrests, and Korean business owners standing on the rooftops of their stores with guns. After the destruction, many Koreans have lost all faith that the authorities can protect them. Next thing I knew, they walked out of their stores. Three of them were holding guns, and they just started firing at everybody and anybody. And what happened is after the L.A. rebellion, there was all this conversation about, like, why were Koreans targeted? So it became, why did Black people, quote-unquote, target Asians? What happened in L.A. is really complicated, and there's no one explanation for it. But some activists and academics have tried to explain it in a way that essentially boils down to arguing that most Black people just don't understand what's going on. You know, there's this whole kind of body of work being created to try to say Black people have misdirected rage, right? Mm. By saying, here's the real reason why Koreans ended up in your neighborhoods is because of globalization or is because of, you know, limited chances for them as non-white people. It was all these ways to kind of say, like, you need to understand why they're in your neighborhood, right? And not be mad at them. It's like, why should a group be in solidarity with you and feel like they can't raise these questions about their unequal status and the way they're being kind of talked about negatively. You know, anti-Blackness in Asian communities, then you might want to question, like, what is the basis of Black Asian solidarity to those Asian Americans? I think those are the questions I would start with. Is there something Black people should be doing right now? Um, I would say that's not for me to say. Mm. I might have thoughts about what I'd like to see happen, but I think that, yeah, I'm not trying to be prescriptive with Black people. Is there something you'd like to see? <laughs> Dexter. <laughs> <laughs> Yo! Dexter. I... <laughs> Go ahead, Dexter. No, it, yo, it's an uncomfortable question, right? I dig it, but I got to ask. 
Because I'm curious. Because I'm curious. I understand. There are some things I don't like about the way that social media lets us only highlight those positive pictures from the 60s and skip over the ugly stuff, like what happened in the 90s. It's like a visual shortcut. But even if people's primary outlet for activism is the internet, I can't really knock that. Because there's so much history out there that most people just don't know. And social media can help us fill that gap. Have you heard of Vincent Chin? Sadly, most people have not. Let's talk about the dragon lady stereotype of Asian women. Where does the term Asian American come from? You'd be surprised to learn that I was coined not so long ago, in the 1960s. These are all TikToks from Eileen Wong. She's 21 years old, Chinese American, and an English major at Yale. In my free time, for the past half year or so or during this pandemic, I've been making a lot of digital content on Asian American history and political education, and mostly on TikTok. But not everyone is on TikTok, and not everything can be conveyed in a quick video. So last summer, after the news of the murder of George Floyd, she wrote an open letter to other Asian Americans who she thought weren't paying attention. A sort of like open personal essay about my experiences with anti-Blackness within my community and like what I saw. One of the main things she pointed out in her letter was that while it was a white man who murdered George Floyd, one of the officers who stood by and watched was Asian American. So those are just a lot of the things that I touched on in my essay. And it clearly struck a nerve with people. Eileen's open letter was published in English and Chinese. But more importantly, it was published on WeChat, This is a social media platform that a lot of the Chinese diaspora uses, and it's where a lot of older and more conservative Chinese immigrants get their information. And then suddenly my mother, who's like on WeChat a lot, was like, Eileen, your article is like going viral. Then I'd like check back a day after the article was published. It was like over 100,000 views. She got some positive messages, like from younger people who were saying, hey, thanks for helping me have a tough conversation with my parents. But she also got a lot of angry comments from people who were not interested in hearing about Asians' relationship with Black people. One really like heated response that got shared many, many times was this like one Chinese immigrant talking about how, you know, if Black people didn't want to be brutalized by the police, they simply should have worked harder, like Asian Americans. I was just kind of wowed by that. I had like hundreds of emails you know, telling me I was a self-hating Asian, I didn't care about my race, I had betrayed my community. And then after that, it elevated to doxing, to people sending me threats, sending my family threats. I think a lot of the response I get to whenever I talk about anti-Blackness is like, why are you throwing your own race under the bus? Like, why don't you care about us? Why aren't you being pro-Asian American? What happened to Eileen is a type of interaction that I've seen play out over and over again. The same kind of comments I saw on those Instagram posts. And it's frustrating to watch. Because who am I to tell Asian people how they should be processing things? And even if I could, if these angry racists won't listen to her about Black people, why would they listen to me, an actual Black person? These conversations are mostly happening within the community. When it gets outside, sometimes it's not pretty. Like earlier this year, when an Asian-American professor at Harvard tweeted this. I want to see how passionately people, including other people of color, will stand up for Asians. Those of you who were so vocal with Black Lives Matter, where are you on the 1900% increase in Asian-directed hate crimes? And look, I think I get what she's trying to say. But as you can imagine, that did not go over well with a lot of black people because most black people don't see a lot of Asian people out there with them on the front lines. Matter of fact, what a lot of black people are going to remember in terms of Asian American activism is a few years back when a black man named Akai Gurley was shot dead in New York by a Chinese American cop. Who got the power? Who got the power? And then thousands and thousands of Chinese Americans marched 
in support of the cop. And we call that an unfair double standard. And that's why we are out here thousands strong. Thousands strong. There were Asian people who rejected this stuff. And instead, they were calling for accountability. They refused to side with a cop who killed someone just because he was Asian. But I'm not sure I can say they had the same impact as those thousand strong crowds. Most people don't know about the Third World Liberation Front, and they most likely haven't seen the Yellow Peril Support's Black Power picture. But they might have seen the pictures and the video of the park full of Asian people chanting to not put this Asian cop in jail. That is the reality. And again, this is all really complicated. So I wanted to talk to someone else who I know is grappling with these questions too. Why is it that when we are coming up with a vision of solidarity that we have to go back to 1967? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And why, this, why, why just this one example over and over and over again, you know? I would like to know the answer to that question, right? We'll be right back. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A home is something you devote yourself to, both emotionally and financially. So when it comes to letting, buying, selling, developing or investing our property experts are always on hand to make every step of the journey as easy and hassle-free as possible discover more at savils.ie savils when you move we move the reviews are in and audiences agree iHeartRadio's number one podcast aftershock is the show you need to binge michaela she's not gonna make it to the mainland by herself Five stars. I love it. It's hard to find a podcast that is truly immersive, and this one takes the cake. Ask me if I care who died on that island. The art of a roller coaster. So many ups and downs, twists and turns. Five stars. Someone's running towards us. Get to the boat now. Has me at the edge of my seat. Everyone that hears me listening to it stops to listen and then subscribes themselves. You owe me. After what you did, you owe me the truth. Heart-stopping and the cast. I can't wait for more. This place is going to collapse. Straps us in and makes us think we're coasting along and we're really racing to an abrupt end. You're going to come with me and we are going to take you apart piece by piece. Aftershock starring Sarah Wayne Callies, David Harbour and Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Come to the island and binge the series everyone is talking about. Follow it on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. All quotes taken from actual user reviews. Remember when we thought tech would save the world? Now we fear it may bring about the end times. But we don't have to live in the futures we see in Terminator, Black Mirror, or Westworld. We can choose a different path, where instead of being used by tech, we use tech to bolster our individual participation, to strengthen our relationships, to help us flex our collective power. So season three of How to Citizen with Baratunde, it's all about tech. Launching October 14th, we will bring you the people building things with technology that go beyond just revenue and user growth. They empower us to citizen. Listen to How to Citizen with Baratunde on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
Okay, test, 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 test. Low, low, can you hear me? Yeah, so there's no video, so I guess it'll just be like, we can just pretend that we're on Clubhouse, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) Have you gotten on there since? No, I can't do it. I just don't know what it is. (laughs) Like, what is it? What am I supposed supposed to be doing on there? It just so happened that at the same time that I was thinking through all this stuff, my friend Jay was doing the same thing. He published an article in the New York Times about anti-Asian violence, black people, and solidarity. So I called him up to see what he was thinking. The first thing I think is the formalities. So if you could introduce yourself. My name is Jay Caspian Kang. I'm a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine. Once upon a time, I was your colleague at Vice News Texter. Um, yeah. Back when it was on HBO. He's also one of the hosts of Time to Say Goodbye, which is a podcast that discusses Asia and Asian America. And he's writing a book on the history of immigration that's coming out later this year. Give me the background. So where you grew up, when you moved, all that sort of thing. Oh, let's see. I was born in Seoul, but my parents were already living here in the States. And mostly grew up in North Carolina. I want to go back to March a little bit when you wrote this opinion piece for the New York Times called We Need to Put a Name to This Violence. So you went all the way back to 92, right? Um, You know, people call it the L.A. riots, uh, people familiar with it by that name, rebellion, uprising, whatever people want to call it. I've seen you write about that before, but you also brought up this track by Ice Cube called Black Korea that came out around this time. How do you feel about that song? Well, I can tell you how I felt about it when I was a kid, you know? Yeah. Um, I loved Ice Cube, and my friends and I would drive around listening to it. I think that it, you can sort of imagine the type of kid that I was, right? Like I watched Menace Society all the time. Menace to Society stars are like Korean store owner getting shot by Odog, right? Mm. And I think that there was a part of you back then that basically just thought that we deserved it, you know? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> that like, you know, that Ice Cube was right. I mean, yeah. was that was that your first reaction is, oh yeah, he's right. I mean, you must have been. Well, I felt very uncomfortable about it, but I think I rationalized it by basically saying we must deserve it. And these, this is when I was 15 years old. So like, you know, mm-hmm. um, and now, you know, I see the lyrics and, you know, like, uh, I don't know. It's, I, I put it within the context of everything that Ice Cube wrote back then. I just think like, Jesus, how deep are these divides? So you're up in the Bay Area and around the beginning of the year, there were videos going around of elders being assaulted. One is in San Francisco, one's in Oakland. And yeah, it looked like basically in the videos, two elderly Asian men being violently attacked by black men. Right. When you saw those videos going around and you heard about it, what was your reaction the first response is that you're horrified and you're scared for your parents and have a kid. You worry about the type of world the kid is going to grow up in. And these are all just visceral reactions. My second thought was just that in 2010, there was a lot of attacks on Asian elders. And it was the same exact narrative. It was uh, in a lot of op-eds that were written in the papers around here in the Bay Area. And one of them has the title, like, you know, the secret about black on Asian crime, stuff like that. I remember thinking back then that like that there was these attacks that were happening that were mostly crimes of opportunity. There was some word out that like Asian elders carried around a lot of cash. They don't call the cops. You know, for whatever reason, this narrative was constructed. And so around then you have this image of this black predator walking around the Bay Area trying to attack old Asian people. And so I thought about that when I saw these videos, because the way in which these were being processed by the national media were like, oh, these are because of coronavirus or these are because of Trump. And my thought was just like, well, in 2010, we didn't have coronavirus or Trump. And we had almost Mm -hmm. identical attacks, almost identical outrage, almost identical quick pathologizing of what this situation is into like a black and Asian type of thing. 
one thing that I noticed when I was looking at videos, because I, I, I don't know how you originally saw these videos. I saw them on Instagram. Me too, yeah. And so I would look at these pretty prominent people, prominent Asian Americans. They'd say, we need to stop this. We need to stop the hate, all this sort of thing. And then in the comments, you'd see people saying, well, why don't you talk about how this is black on Asian crime? Right. I sensed that they were having a hard time figuring out, okay, what do we do with this? I opened this comment section for people to be able to express support, but now all of a sudden it's gotten super racist against black people. That's just true of every forum that this is discussed online. I mean, it happened in my Twitter feed too. What I see when I see a lot of these, you know, the the conversation on social media, you know, among you know, again, a certain class of Asian American leftist activists, I see a really deep desire for an actual, you know, I don't think they're faking it, right? They genuinely desire a black Asian solidarity. Oh, yeah, that's what they want more than anything, right? Yeah. Um, They want to be believed when they say that they think what happened to, say, Dante Wright or to George Floyd was a travesty, and they genuinely believe that, right? And they don't want their concern for justice or their beliefs in justice to be overridden by the fact that they're part of a group that's traditionally seen as anti-black. And so they're dealing with all this sort of stuff. And I think that what they want is that they want their struggles to also be reflected in the struggle for black liberation. But again, yeah, I just think that basically, like we live in this era where things are so internally segregated. So you wrote this profile on Stephen Young for the New York Times magazine back in February. And Stephen obviously is a super successful Korean American actor. He was in Walking Dead. And and you quoted him saying, sometimes I wonder if the Asian American experience is what it's like when you're thinking about everyone else, but nobody else is thinking about you. Right. I have seen that quoted so many times, especially because the thing you, this came out right, I think this came out right after the video started circulating of these attacks in the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, then you have what happens in Atlanta and you have people attaching that quote to their activism. You know, it's interesting because like, I think that that quote can be taken in a couple ways. I think it's why people felt so much despair about these attacks and then Atlanta, which is like, mm-hmm. we're told we're white adjacent. We're told that racism against us doesn't matter. And most of us who are in this professional upwardly ascendant class basically ignore a lot of stuff and try and minimize, 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 right? And at some point you just feel I can't minimize this anymore because Mm -hmm. all these videos are coming across my timeline. And I think that like essentially that it was a way for people to process themselves sort of finally taking a stand for their own people. I don't know. I guess I would ask in those moments, like uh, not that you shouldn't do that, not that you should not have this moment of awakening, but that you orient it in a way where it's uh, political it's not just about identity and self-awakening. It's like, all right, like, is, is this moment going to produce a coherent vision of Asian America and what is it going to be? And I can tell you that on the right, that's happening. And they have yeah. a very coherent vision of what Asian America should be. It's like, well, it's just East Asians who want to get their kids into Harvard and Uh, which is a lot of people, you know, even people who are working class, right? Like we believe in American capitalism. We believe in American meritocracy. We believe in the American educational system's ability to sort out good students from bad students. All we want is a fair shot and for you to not discriminate against us and for you to not attack us. And like, that's going to be what they say. Then I think, well, what is my side's vision for what Asian America could be, right? And what, what is it? third world liberation front, like sort of these like endless relitigations of the sixties, right. Uh, the sort of like history of trauma, like with Vincent Chin and the Chinese exclusion act, Mm. you know? So like, what's the left's version of it going to be? And I just don't have any answers for that. And that's what scares me because I know that I disagree 100% with right wings version. The right wings version is about let's advance 
let's move up that ladder. And these attacks are proof that we are oppressed minorities. But if we could just stop this oppression and help each other and not help anyone else, then we'll make it. That's a vision. It is a clear, pragmatic vision. I would say that the rights vision is built on a whole lot of lies, but like, you know, I don't know, like one vision is better than no vision. So that's what I'm worried about. And of course, that vision that you're talking about, sort of the, you know, if we can use the term, the sort of right wing uh, vision that some Asian Americans are, are pushing toward, that I would say implicitly does not include a black Asian solidarity. Right. When I saw that quote that you quoted from Steve Young, right? Um, you know, if the Asian American experience is what it's like when you're thinking about everybody else, but nobody's thinking about you. Honestly, from a black perspective, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Because black people, I don't think, spend a whole lot of time thinking about Asian people. Sure. Politically. Like, and and this is and this is if I'm talking about and I want to be careful here, right? Because obviously there are activists who spend quite a bit of time really thinking across all sorts of different lines, right? In terms of, you know, throughout the words intersectionality, you know what I mean? Solidarity, all these sorts of things, right? But if you ask even your average person, do they have in the front of their mind what is the plight of an Asian American? I, I don't think so. Like that's that's not something that I think a lot of people are spending that much time thinking about. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think uh, this idea of solidarity, it's what I want. It's what I've Same. It's what I work towards. And yet, I think that same thing to sort of get anywhere, you have to understand where we are, how far we are from it, you know, how far the people who are in these communities are from it. Now, you and I are friends, but, you know, we met as television correspondents on an HBO show. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We both have Ivy League degrees, right? And, Mm. you know, we are in mostly white spaces. So... We rely on each other, right? And so I think a lot of people take those experiences and they want that to be applicable to everybody, right? And so they go to all these other people and they're like, why can't you be like me? And be like, well, you know, like not everyone is in that space, right? Yeah. And I think to even start to have a conversation about solidarity, you have to sort of accurately diagnose the, the depths of, you know, two groups that don't, a think about each other that much but also be like a lot of times don't particularly like each other yeah because that's a reality right and if you can't say that then you're not serious about solidarity right like that's how i feel if you can't accurately assess the situation then you're not serious about it and i guess that's what's been bothering me for so long this feeling that maybe some of us are underestimating just how hard this is going to be. I mean, you know, <laughs> Jay, you're Korean, I'm black. Like, I like you. Yeah, we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we're friends. And I mean, you know, if something happens to you, I'm on the front line. If something happens to me, you're on the front line. Right. But that's not because we are, you know, that's a decision that we've made. You know what I mean? Right. When I see people talking about Black Asian solidarity... In, in the current time, right? I don't see... It's 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 just straight up not happening. Right. The secret history is what Tamara Knopper, who you talked to, calls it. She said that to me recently. And I was like, yeah, that's sort of what it is, right? Like, can we just unlock the secret history? And here's the thing about that. 1967 was a long time ago. To expect that type of narrative to make sense to, like, the people who are providing those comments or to the people who just moved here, you know, <laughs> who might be working in kitchens in San Francisco or, um, you know, or, or to really literally anyone else, right? Like, h- how do you make that leap, right? Like, why is that history so relevant? Um, it's not. So, so why, why do you think people keep sticking to that? I feel like somebody's trying to convince somebody. Right. And they ain't trying to convince me because I, I know I'm good. I'm, I'm on board. I've been on board. <laughs> yeah. right, who, well, who are we trying to convince? All right. Well, you teed it up. They're trying to, I think they're trying to convince white people, right? Like, I think that's mm. sort of what it is. And I just don't know what that history is doing at this point. 
I do think that in a lot of ways, it is for white people. It is not for you, Dexter. It is not for me. It is to show that, you know, there was a point where these types of things happened and where we were united against white supremacy and that Asian people are not innately racist. Now, a lot of them are, will point to work that's being done. And I, I believe in that work and I will spend a lot of my life doing that work. I think we're just not aligned in our assessment of how far we have to go. I do think that the next generation will be much better about it. And maybe they'll figure something out. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Living leaves a mark on our planet and in our communities, but it doesn't have to leave a scar. At OnPost, we're building a postal and delivery service for the future through Ireland's largest electric fleet, delivering e-commerce with zero emissions. With the Green Hub helping people transform their homes for greener living and services that keep our communities connected and thriving. Living leaves a mark. Together, let's leave one we're proud of. OnPost, for your world. For more information on our zero emission deliveries in Dublin, Cork, Limerick and Waterford city centres, visit onpus.com forward slash sustainability. In this season of Unobscured, we will follow Grigory Rasputin's transformation from a peasant at the crossroads of history to a monster at the centre of far too many legends. And in the process, learn how he took the weight of a fallen empire with him to the grave. Elite aristocratic society in Russia at the time was fascinated with very spiritualist leaders, with gurus. And there was this desire to seek alternate ways of connecting with reality that traditional religion and the church were unable to explain to people who were seeking answers to sort of these life's questions that seemed to have this pressing urgency right around 1900. Join us as we make our way into the burning palaces of imperial Russia, to dig up the truth about Grigory Rasputin. Unobscured Season 4 is available now. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. River Cafe Table 4 is a brand new podcast with me, Ruthie Rogers, the founder and chef of the River Cafe in London. River Cafe Table 4 takes us on a food journey around the world with friends like Paul McCartney. John Lennon and I hitchhiked to Paris and we thought, oh, we've got to have a wine experience. We're in France. And we took a sip and thought, that is terrible. It's like vinegar. So join us at River Cafe Table 4 to hear this brand new podcast all about their memories, their travels and the food they turn to for comfort. Listen to River Cafe Table 4 on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Dexter Thomas for this piece, and special thanks to Kim Tran. Vice News Reports is produced by Jesse Alejandro Cottrell, Sophie Kazis, Jen Kinney, Janice Yamoka, and Julia Nutter. 
Our senior producers are Ashley Cleek and Adiza Egan. Our associate producers are Sam Egan and Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone, Pran Bandy, and Kyle Murdoch. Our executive producer and VP of Vice Audio is Kate Osborne. Janet Lee is senior production manager for Vice Audio. Production coordination by Steph Brown. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. From iHeart executive producers Nikki Etor and Lindsay Hoffman. I'm Ariel Zemros. I know podcast hosts say this all the time. I say this all the time, but for real. Please rate and review this podcast. It really does help other people find this show. Vice News Reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week. changing job or trying a new career data is at the center of everything we do from providing critical services to the front line to delivering the latest news and entertainment into hands and homes all over the world all of this is made possible because of the data center industry one of the world's fastest growing industries at host in ireland our partners have a wide range of jobs available from engineers to project managers electricians to technicians to find your next job visit the jobs page at hostinireland.com River Cafe Table 4 is a brand new podcast with me, Ruthie Rogers. Each week, I invite a special guest, such as Paul McCartney, to discuss their food memories. John Lennon and I hitchhiked to Paris, and we thought, oh, we've got to have a wine experience. We're in France. And we took a sip and thought, that is terrible. It's like vinegar. Listen to River Cafe Table 4 on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. At age 30, Carissa finished her high school diploma. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, you can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.